Welcome to the Mind and Matter podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with science writer Carl Zimmer. Carl is an award-winning New York Times columnist and the author of over a dozen popular science books. His latest book is Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive. Carl and I spent most of our time discussing this new book, which centers around the question of what living things are. The book explores historical examples of scientists grappling with this question of what the essence of living things actually is. It goes into various exotic forms of life here on Earth and how they work, as well as questions around how life originated on Earth and the hunt for extraterrestrial life elsewhere in the universe. We also discussed Carl's approach to science writing, including where he draws inspiration and his writing process. As always, if you enjoy the content of this podcast and you find it useful, please like, share, and subscribe wherever you're listening. You can subscribe on YouTube to get notifications of when new episodes are uploaded on the video podcast. You can support the podcast through a couple of mechanisms. One is to sign up for a Good Chemistry Patreon account on Patreon, and the other is to go to goodchemistry.locals.com and sign up to join the Good Chemistry community there. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist, an all-natural cannabis company specializing in dose-controlled cannabis products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. With that, here's my episode with Carl Zimmer. Carl Zimmer, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Where are you calling in from today? And can you give everyone like a short bio of who, who you are? Well, I write books about science and I'm also a columnist for the New York Times. And I'm talking to you from uh, lovely Connecticut. And how are things going over there right now in terms of COVID? Have you gotten a vaccine yet? I have gotten the vaccine. I'm talking to you a couple of days out of my second dose. So I've gotten through that uh that challenging time of just relaxing on the couch while my body makes lots of spike proteins. So I'm feeling pretty good. Cool. Yeah, I'm actually the same. I got it. My second dose two days ago. Which which one did you get? Pfizer. Yeah, that was the same one I got. So you felt it a little bit after the second dose. I felt a little after the first dose. I felt okay. it a lot after the second dose. But you know, I just just stretched out on the couch and listened to a podcast series for the afternoon and. Next day, I was back in action. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining me. I am hoping to talk to you mostly about your latest book. So I've got it right here. It's called Life's Edge. Um, I believe it's it is out now. Is that right? Yes, uh, it, it is out and available at all fine bookstores. So it's basically about this question: What is life? That many many people have asked. And I immediately start to think about the famous one-liner from a Supreme Court case from a few decades ago that was about obscenity, where one of the justices is asked to define pornography, and he can't actually come up with a definition. He just says, I know it when I see it. And I think life is kind of like that, right? We all know life when we see it, and yet it's this concept, it's this thing that escapes a precise definition, or it's at least very difficult to come up with something like that when you when you try and stop and think about it. So, just to start out with, what you know, what was the reason you decided to write about this topic, and why do you think it's it's such a difficult question to answer? 
Well, you know, maybe all of us have asked this question when we were kids, um, once we started using the word life or alive and, you know, ask our parents, well, what is, what is it? And we probably didn't get a great answer from them. Um, I was one of those kids and then grew up and became a writer. And I ended up writing mostly um, about the science of biology, which is the science of life. So I write about all sorts of living things, not just human beings, but bacteria and maple trees and jellyfish and just all sorts of things that we call alive. Um, what uh, kind of uh, repeatedly uh, surprised me was just how difficult it was for biologists themselves to agree on a definition of life. Um, there are hundreds of definitions published in the scientific literature by scientists themselves and new ones keep coming out. Um, so over all this time, um, scientists really aren't converging, I'd say, on some very clear uh, definition. And I just find that fascinating because, you know, pornography is one thing. I mean, pornography is a, a human creation. So, you know, I mean, how do we how do we define games? Like what, what's a game? Well, you know, like that's, that's complicated too. And, and for good reason, because it's a human activity, but, uh, but life, like that's something that's one of the most important things that science can address. And if scientists are struggling to define life, if they're struggling to draw a line between the living and the non-living worlds, um, I just find that fascinating. And, and what's really fascinating is that there are some scientists and philosophers who are sort of actively grappling with this, this problem. Um, why, why is it so hard? And does that actually tell us something deep about, about life, um, how life began, how we'd recognize it if it came in a very unfamiliar form on another planet? Um, so yeah, so it's, it's something that sort of, this is a book that has bubbled up within me over, over many years. Mm -hmm. One of, um, one of the things that strikes me is it's, it's very intuitive for people to think about being alive, right? Where we all are alive. We all feel alive. And one of the interesting things that you brought up towards the beginning of the book is that's actually not universal. Um, because there are a small number of people that have a neurological problem that actually prevents them from feeling alive. So can you talk about what that uh, syndrome was and how it originates? Yeah, so uh, this is called Cotard syndrome and is named after a French physician named Cotard who in the 19th century um, encountered a patient um, who explained to him that she was dead. And, <laughs> you know, it's seems kind of paradoxical. How can someone uh, be dead and be able to tell you that they're dead? Well, this person had absolute conviction and had a very elaborate explanation about being dead. And over the years, from time to time, psychiatrists uh, and neurologists have come across a few people who also will say they are dead. They will tell you how they died. They will explain to you how they're, you know, now just a, an empty husk, um, how they don't take a bath because they're, they know that they will just dissolve away because there's nothing alive inside them. And what, what fascinates me is that um, we sort of take it 
as sort of an objective, obvious fact that each of us are alive. So, so I know I'm alive. You know you're alive. But we never sort of question how we know that um, mm-hmm. because we think it's obvious. There are living people for whom it's not obvious. And in fact, what's obvious is the opposite. And so what I think this points to is that there are actually... Um, there are actually, you know, brain circuits deep in our evolutionary history that um, are responsible for sort of monitoring our own interactivity. And we have sort of taken those as being um, uh, sort of a, kind of an objective reality um, and that, or knowledge, you know, whereas they're just these kind of, you know, signals that our brains are using to then uh, come up with other decisions on a very sort of deep uh, subconscious level. Um, so the, the fact that we know we're alive is really more of, a, of, a, of an unconscious um, uh, response of our brains. And you can pull out, as it were, that's part of that circuit and the brain will keep working, language will keep working, uh, and yet people will no longer recognize themselves as alive. So, um, so I, you know, I think that's maybe the first opportunity to, to, to the, the most intimate opportunity to stop and say like, wait a minute, we're taking life and being alive and knowing that even yourself are alive for granted. So let's, let's dig deeper. Yeah. So humans clearly have this sense. We know that we're alive um, we have rituals built around the birth of new life and also the passing of people that were alive. And I'm curious um, to get you talking about how how deep this sense goes, how far back in evolutionary history it goes. At one point in the book, you talk about something called primate thanatology. So what is that? And what does it tell us about the evolutionary history of this awareness of life and death? So thanatology is, is the science of death. Uh, and um, so in, in a way, uh, the question of what is life can be flipped on its head and say, well, what is death? Um, there was a French physician in the late 18th century named uh, Javier Bichat who, who s- said essentially that, uh, that life is the means by which death is resisted. So um, once death is no longer resisted, you're not alive anymore, you're dead. Um, and so, so scientists have been wondering, well, uh, what, is our, uh, what is the means by which we know that others are dead? Um, you know, people who with Qatar syndrome think themselves are dead, but how do we recognize death in others? And again, um, that might seem obvious, but um, you know, we we actually uh, we humans uh, in the 21st century will will use all sorts of uh, various means to determine death. Um, we might check someone's pulse and might say, like, well, if they don't have a pulse, then they must be dead. Unless, of course, the pulse is too weak because you know maybe they have hypothermia or something like that, and we just can't hear the pulse, can't feel it. Um, so, uh, so it's actually difficult sometimes to determine, uh, if someone is dead, uh, this, this actually led to, uh, lots of, um, practices, even in the 19th century where, um, uh, 
caskets, coffins would be rigged up with strings and bells so that if someone was accidentally given a premature burial, they could ring the bell when they woke up and they could be taken out of the ground. Um, now, uh, so, so then this, this sort of raises the question, well, um, how far back in human history uh, were we aware of, of death? Um, and uh, it, it, one of the best ways to look at this question is to, to compare our behavior with the behavior of our closest male relatives, the primates. Um, and um, so even before Darwin, um, there were uh, British naturalists who were, as they were starting to uh, move into British colonies like India, for example, and uh, they would observe primates, monkeys, for example, and uh, they'd be really struck sometimes by how uh, a, a troop of monkeys might have some sort of visible change when one of the members of their monkey troop died. Um, and they would describe it like it was grieving, um, that they would make these sounds that sounded like wailing, uh, like grief. Now, you know, how much of that is anthropomorphism? How much of it isn't? Well, that was a question that Darwin got really interested in because he believed that human behaviors connected with primate behaviors through evolution from a common ancestor. Um, and uh, much more recently, uh, scientists like Jane Goodall would go and just spend time with wild communities of primates, of, of, in her case, chimpanzees, um, and just try to quietly observe them for long, long periods of time. And every now and then, a chimpanzee would die, and she would sometimes notice that they would do very unusual things, like... Uh, a mother might carry uh, their dead infant in a kind of peculiar way for a couple of days after it had died. Um, so more recently, we've gotten a lot more data on this. And um, so it, it does, and, and there are some pretty elaborate uh, explanations for how it is that um, humans, uh, apes and monkeys uh, share some of the same kind of responses to death. Uh, and and there, there, there's some pretty elaborate explanations that are being explored now. Um, so part of it is that, uh, again, you know, death is the flip side of life in the sense that, um, you know, we have in our brains very sensitive biological circuits for detecting life around us. So we have this feeling that we're alive and, but we can also look around and we, we can pick out sort of evidence of life very quickly, um, not in any sort of rational deductive way, but we just, we, we are tuned to certain kinds of features of biology, like biological motion. So, it, so when, when uh, animals move around in a sort of purposeful way, boom, like certain parts of our brains light up in a way that's different than if we just see like a, a rock rolling down a hill, just passively obeying physics. Um, so, um, so we see that in, in, in each other, uh, and not only do we see that kind of biological motion, but all primates are very keenly tuned to, um, faces. Um, and so, you know, you have, uh, 
you know, you're looking at the, the, the movements of the face, you're looking at the expression of the face. Um, and again, we have, you know, quote unquote, face circuits in our brains, which are very keenly tuned to that. And that's, that makes you aware of other living things that surround you socially. Um, so, you know, you want to be aware of predators that might come and jump at you, but you also want to be, you know, very carefully keeping track of what, you know, members of your troop are up to. You know, how are you going to fit in the hierarchy and so on? Are you going to get ambushed by a rival or something like that? Um, so when death comes, um, the, you have this member of your group uh, and it's, it's looking at that, that member of your group. It lights up some of these uh, uh, biological circuits, but they may not be moving at all. If they've sort of collapsed, they may, their body may be in some strange position that's very unfamiliar. You know, you you don't can't fit that into your sort of biological uh, shape recognition, as it were. Um, and their faces are no longer um, responding in the way that you're used to. And so, it could be that um, for monkeys, at least, like you know, why is it that monkeys will spend a long time near other dead monkeys. Well, maybe they are, are needing time to um, to process this mismatch. And then mm -hmm. eventually they can recategorize members of their troop as, as dead. Um, now, in, in, in our own lineage, you know, that became more elaborate. So you have, you know, human relatives who start to bring uh, dead members of, of their own species to uh, to these caves and seem to be leaving their, their bodies there. Um, you know, is that a way just to kind of get them out of the way or is it some sort of ceremony? We don't know. Um, but but then more recently, um, you know, in the, within the past hundred thousand years, you do start to see evidence of what we'd agree are sort of full on funerals where, um, you know, bodies are being put um, somewhere in the ground in some cases being decorated with flowers with other objects and um so it you know it could be that um you know through language we develop a more elaborate conception both of life and of death and that we carry that on till now hmm. so like the basic recognition that a conspecific has passed away might go back tens of millions of years in primates, but the fully modern conception of death that, that we would call the, the fully modern human view of death goes back perhaps a hundred thousand years. That yes. I mean, uh, again, when you're talking about human evolution, you often are having to just, you, you can't like point to a, a day on the calendar. You often have to like make brackets over periods of time, mm -hmm. because all you've got to go with are, are, is the evidence. And the evidence can be fossils. The evidence can be comparisons between different species. Um, in some cases, when you're lucky, it can be looking at genes. Um, so, uh, so yes, I mean, there, there are, there are clearly, uh, funerals in, uh, in the archeological record, um, within the past hundred thousand years. So, you know, it's the, the, then the question is, well, how far back do you go to the first funeral? How was it that simply hauling a body and putting it, say, in a cave chamber um, 
sort of di- changes from that and in, into into funerals with rituals and and you know what does and why did it change? Did it change because um, we started to think about life differently, in life in terms of uh, you know our existence within a society? You know these are these are fascinating questions. Some of them will get answered. Some of them may never be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm really interested in that conception of life that you mentioned a couple minutes ago of life being the resistance to death. And I think I think that actually ties into concepts that people who think about this have brought up in the past around, you know, life being in some sense a resistance to entropy, to the natural tendency of things to become more disordered in the physical world and the homeostatic regulation of various forms of chemistry that seem to be characteristic of life. Before we get there, I wanted to ask you about a couple other things. Um, there's various places in the book where you sort of look at really extreme out there forms of life to get at this question of like, how, how far can life go? Uh, at one point you bring up cryptobiotic species. So what is that and how do their extreme abilities allow them to defy, defy death in ways that are remarkable? So this, um, is a, you can think of it as a third state between life and death. Now that might seem impossible, like either you got life or you got death and that's it. But uh, the world doesn't really care about the lines that we might want to draw. And the first person to really um, appreciate uh, this, this third state was Antony von Leeuwenhoek, who is one of the pioneers of microscopes. Um, he, He built himself microscopes and used them to discover all sorts of things in the 1600s that no one else had seen before. Um, discovering different kinds of cells, dis- uh, discovering uh, you know, lots of single-celled organisms, um, and uh, you know, really kind of opened up this hidden world to all of us. Um, and uh, he um, he noticed one day it was a kind of a he noticed his gutter on his house was full of water, so it's like, well, let's see what's in there. So he scoops it up and um, <clears throat> puts a drop in his microscope and he sees you know, odd little animals uh, with what look like wheels on their heads, they're spinning around. Um, these are microscopic animals called rotifers. And he's like, oh, that's cool. Okay, so I got this little zoo in the gutter of my house. Very interesting. Um, uh, what was really surprising was that, you know, the summer comes, the water dries out and there's this sort of like a, you know, a kind of red, caked dried mud in his gutter. So he's like, hmm, I wonder, I wonder what's, what that's like now. So he just goes and he cracks off a bit of this dried mud and, and he, you know, he's looking at it and he, and he decides to, to wet some of it and put it in, um, put it under his microscope. And um, he sees these uh, rotifers again, but they're, they're just totally, they look, they 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 have a strange shape. They're sort of squashed, and they and they seem like, as far as he can tell, is they're dead. Um, but uh, when he takes a look at them later, their their wheels are spinning on their head again, like, and they're just spinning around. And he's like, "Well, wait, whoa! Like these were dead, and now they're not dead." Um, you know, it's one thing for you know seeds, for example, to to go dormant. You know, and and that's that's a remarkable thing in itself. But you know, we think of animals as, well, you know, like they they 
they are irreversible. Right, right. You know, they've got all these cells that are being very active, you know, and then they may have circulatory systems. They have to keep up their metabolism. Like, you know, you're an animal, like you're not, you're not a seed. Right. Um, so what was going on with this animal? And so then um, in the 1700s, um, other scientists would slowly discover other examples of this the little nematode worms, uh, for example, that uh, they could be dried out and be in this weird state for years. And then just, throw them in water and boom, they're back in action. Um, and um, so, so, so there have actually like been just, you know, this has been such a, a point of, of fascination and, and controversy for, for centuries actually, because biologists are just saying like, what is going on? And um, it, they have a better idea of it now, but um, I, I wouldn't say that it's all uh, figured out. Um, my favorite example um, has to do with um, another little animal called tardigrades. Um, and if you've ever seen a picture of tardigrades, you know, you, you'll, you'll, you'll love them forever. They're so cute. And they're, 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 some people call them water bears and some people call them moss piglets because they've got these eight legs, no eyes, just this giant sort of weird snout with a sort of circular sucker shaped mouth. Um, and they just amble around on their eight legs and uh, and eat and uh, just do their thing uh, on moss in the ocean all over the place. They're everywhere. Um, so um, what's uh, kind of astonishing is that um, you can. Uh, it's really it's really hard to kill a tardigrade. Um, so for example, like if if you like if we just you know locked you in a room and didn't give you water. Um, you would eventually die of thirst. Um, and, you know, you're, you're uh, and it would particularly help if, you know, we turned up the heat in the room too. I mean, basically what would happen is that, you know, the water content in your body would start going down and down and down. And, you know, many of the proteins that carry out essential chemistry in your body just don't work anymore unless they don't, unless they're in enough water. So chemistry fails, you die we're done. And, and, you know, that's irreversible. Like it's, you know, it, I, I can't come back in the room and just dump a bucket of water on your face and say like, Hey, wake up. Like, that's it. Goodbye. Um, but that's not the case for tardigrades. So tardigrades, um, they can dry out and they can stay dried out for decades. Um, we actually don't know how long they can stay dried out. Um, uh, the, 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 I believe, I, I someone recently told me that the record is a century, but I need to double check on that. I, I know that it's like over 50 years, but anyway, like it's kind of a hard thing to, 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 to prove since it takes so long to, to, to test, but point being, these are amazing animals. So how do they do it? Well, it appears that as they're starting to dry out, <clears throat> they uh, can start making a kind of a replacement for water. They make a, a certain kind of sugar, which has some of the chemical properties of water. And uh, it can, uh, so it will sort of sub in for water. Um, it doesn't evaporate. So, um, so it's not gonna disappear the way water did. Um, but this in a way, you know, just buys the tardigrade time because the long-term solution that the tardigrade is creating for itself is it starts making a very special kind of protein that just starts to sort of fill up its cells and basically kind of lock in 
um, all the other molecules in place. It, and so it's kind of like glass. So eventually you can have a completely dried out tardigrade that has um, been turned into this kind of protein glass. Hmm. And that, that they, they will just uh, hang in there in this state um, for a very long time. And, and you can, you can you know, scientists have, have put tardigrades on rocket ships and sent them into Earth orbit. They've gone into space. Um, you bring them back and then you, uh, you give them some water, they're fine. Um, they can they can handle the 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 vacuum of space. They can handle the radiation they encounter there, um, because they are frozen into this third state, and what scientists will call cryptobiosis. Um, and uh, there are probably a lot of other animals, some plants uh, and some fungi that can do something similar. Um, we can't, but you know, who knows? Maybe there are some things we can learn from cryptobiosis uh, that we can harness uh, for medicine, for example. Maybe there are some secrets there for keeping organs uh, more viable for transplantation, or, or um, you know, some other types of secrets for preservation. But who knows? Who knows? One of the other interesting life forms that you spend some time on in the book are slime molds. And a couple of phrases that popped out to me were, you know, one person described them as a moving stomach. And for those who don't know what a slime mold is, we'll unpack it, but you know, it's, it's mold, it's basically slime. And so it's not that impressive at first blush, but these organisms can actually do very impressive things that we might characterize as problem solving. And they have, you say, a brainless kind of memory. So what are slime molds and how do they work? So uh, people may have seen slime molds without knowing what they were seeing. Um, they, if you've walked in the wood on a summer day and you look down at a log or on the ground, you may have seen a strange little spattering of brightly colored blobby things. Uh, and uh, those are slime molds. Um, and there are hundreds and hundreds of species of slime molds around the world. They have all sorts of great names. Uh, my favorite is dog vomit um, because that's honestly what it looks like. It looks like you are some dog went in the wood and threw up, but it's actually a living thing. And and uh, actually, when you're looking at that dog vomit or some some bright yellow um, strange sort of spattering of tentacles, um, th these things can get to be the size of a, a, of a teacup or even of a placemat. Um, you're looking at a single cell. It's just one cell. It's not a multicellular organism the way we are or the way a mushroom is uh, or, or, or a plant. It is one huge cell. And, um, you know, it's got DNA in it. It actually has its DNA like ours is packed into a nucleus, but it may have millions of nuclei inside of it. Um, so that if, uh, if, if the weather gets dry, um, part of it may break off and fly away. And if it lands in a wet place, it's got those genetic instructions inside of it to just start growing again into another giant cell. 
Um, they, when two slime molds meet, um, they can have a very bizarre form of sex where they, they actually create an entirely new cell that has a combination of their genes. Um, and then that goes off and does its thing. Hmm. Um, so, um, so I am really fascinated by slime molds because of the fascination that a lot of scientists have with it. Um, you know, it's because scientists, you know, they they would they would take some take a sample of slime mold and bring it into their lab to understand well how does it go about its life. Slime molds eat uh, bacteria that they find growing on surfaces in the woods, and um, so you can actually um, feed uh, slime molds in, in a lab. Um, I spent a lot of time at a a lab uh, of a scientist named Simon Garnier, who's at the New Jersey Institute of Technology. And um, his uh, favorite food for slime molds is uh, just a few flakes of oatmeal. Um, because oatmeal, like lots of other things, has bacteria growing on it and the slime molds love it. So so if you put a little, little a pile of oatmeal in a Petri dish and you put a little slime mold and on the other side of the Petri dish, um, very slowly, like over the course of hours, um, that slime mold will extend tentacles and will eventually uh, reach the oatmeal and will envelop it in the Simon Garnier studies a particular kind of slime mold called Physarum, which has these beautiful yellow tentacles. And so, you know, within a day, that lump of oatmeal is going to be turning gold because the slime mold is, is feeding off of it. So that slime mold had to find it. <laughs> and it doesn't have eyes, <clears throat> so it can't see it. Um, and what it seems to do is it seems to, um, it, it seems to have a kind of maybe think of it as a sense of taste so that um, as molecules are diffusing from the oatmeal across the Petri dish, it can taste uh, the, the flavor uh, of this oatmeal from a distance and try to follow that taste towards the source. Um, so that's pretty complicated. That's pretty interesting, but um, that's just the slime mold just getting started, honestly. Um, so for example, um, scientists can build a maze for a slime mold. So you just take little pieces of uh, acetate <clears throat> and you lay them down on a dish and in, in basically create walls uh, of a maze. And if you put the slime mold at the entrance of the maze and you put uh, oatmeal at the exit of the maze and then just go away. Um, uh, and when you come back, maybe in a day, um, the slime mold will have spread out and explored the maze and eventually made its way to the oatmeal. And what's amazing is if, if you take sort of stop action pictures of this, you can see that um, once it's found the oatmeal, it retracts its tentacles that were going off into dead ends. And so what you're left with is the shortest path through the maze to the food. Um, you know, you can have mazes where, you know, there are several different potential paths you can take, and but some are longer than others. It will sort of pare itself down to the shortest uh, path um, because that's efficient. 
You know, you, it doesn't have to like waste energy maintaining a bigger body. Um, it can just focus on eating the food. Um, so, so scientists are finding that, um, that these, uh, these slime molds are doing all sorts of uh, astonishing things. They're almost like mathematical. Um, they, they seem to be doing a kind of computation. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you mentioned memory. Um, uh, I talk about this in the book that um, uh, they, 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 you think like, well, how could a slime mold have memory? It doesn't have a brain, doesn't have a hippocampus. Like there's no place for memory inside a slime mold. Um, and uh, the fact is that slime molds may not need to actually store their memories inside of themselves. They can create sort of an external memory. Um, so what they do is they, you know, they extend their tentacles in different directions. And when they retract their tentacles from a dead end, um, they can still sort of sense the, the, the flavor of having been there. Uh, they leave behind a, 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 a signature of themselves. Mm -hmm. So slime molds will tend to avoid where they have been before. And this is like, so they can remember in a sense, their failed explorations. And so if, so that means that you don't waste time going in places that you tried to go before and didn't manage to get any payoff for it. Um, so, you know, you can, um, so a slide, you can sort of build like a very simple experiment is to put some oatmeal on one end of a dish, put the slime on the other end of the dish, and then create a kind of a U-shaped um, trap uh, between the slime mold and the oatmeal. So if the, if the, if the slime mold goes straight for the oatmeal, it's just gonna hit this wall, the end of this U-shaped barrier. So what the slime molds will do is they'll, they'll go, zoom, they'll hit the wall, and then they'll sort of start to, to, to explore around a little bit. And eventually they just shoot around, they go backwards, back around uh, the, the edge of that uh, U-shaped wall, Hook, hook around on the outside of it and then go around the outside to get to the food. So they're actually able to override that natural movement towards the food. They actually go backwards because they're just also trying to avoid where they've been. So that combination lets them do this incredible sophisticated navigation through, through this space. Um, so why is this in a book about life? Well, um, I, in Life's Edge, I, I, in terms of coming to terms with life, I wanted to look at what we think of as, as some of the hallmarks of life. What are, what are things, that, uh, that, things that seem to set life apart from everything else? And, and what, it's a combination of hallmarks. And one of those hallmarks that you see again and again is that uh, living things have um, what Simon Garnier, who studies these slime molds, would say is, is intelligence. He has a very broad definition of intelligence. He thinks slime molds are intelligent. Um, and intelligence is basically um, arrangements of, of molecules, in a sense, that are able to take in information from the environment, use that information to make decisions about what to do next. And those decisions are better than random. So that, uh, you know, a slime mold is not just like going around randomly. A slime mold does a really good job of getting to food. Um, and, uh, and you can 
study that down to these you know, its molecular components with a slime mold because you don't have to worry about a brain or anything complicated like that. It's just one cell, and and it it's it has intelligence and in it's almost in its purest form. Hmm. Yeah, one of the things I want to talk about is the concept of homeostasis. And this is often brought up as one of these essential features of life. So we can look at something like a slime mold or a tardigrade or a human, and all of these things are very, very different in terms of how they behave and how they work. And yet they all share something in common. And that has to do with the fact that we share a common evolutionary history ultimately. And you know we're not completely different. There's actually a lot of shared processes there. And you talk at one point in the book about this concept of homeostasis. And there's a quote you have in there from a very famous biologist from the 19th century named Claude Bernard. And he said, quote, all vital mechanisms, however varied they may be, have only one object, that of preserving constant the conditions of life in the internal environment. So what is homeostasis in simple terms? And can we point to that as perhaps being the essence of life? Well, it certainly is a hallmark of life. Um, and what homeostasis is, is uh, this stability. Uh, so, so life uh, is remarkably stable even when its environment is changing. Um, now that stability can take many different forms. So, you know, for us, for example, um, we have lots of different kinds of homeostasis. We, uh, and, and if we lost any of them, we would die. So for example, um, our body temperature um, generally stays incredibly stable. E even when it gets cold or hot uh, around us, we have all sorts of ways of keeping our, our body temperature at a very narrow band uh, of temperature. <clears throat> and that's a temperature at which um, our proteins are, have evolved to work at an optimal way. Our blood sugar level uh, stays at an optimal level, you know, and that's true even if we haven't eaten for hours or e if we're in the middle of eating, you know, a candy bar, like we, we, we can keep our blood sugar very stable. Um, and uh, there are all sorts of other uh, uh, parameters that, uh, that we keep really tightly controlled all the time. Um, and, you know, it's just kind of, and these aren't things that just sort of keep themselves stable. Uh, they have to be maintained. Um, now, um, you, uh, there are uh, different, you know, different species will have different kinds of homeostasis because um, they have different needs for staying balanced, but it's just a theme that you see over and over again throughout life. Um, one example I really like is, is with bats. Um, so <clears throat> when I was working on the book, I went to visit some hibernating bats in an abandoned mine in New York. So here were bats that were surviving winter in the Adirondacks and they were doing it by going into uh, this abandoned mine where the temperature is, you know, maybe around 40, 45 degrees. And they had dropped their, uh, their body temperature to that level. Um, now they were still uh, breathing slowly, 
but you know they were still managing the oxygen and levels in their bodies, so they had that kind of homeostasis. Um, their 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 hearts were still beating, so they still had a, sort of a certain blood pressure they were maintaining. So they had that inner balance. They just shifted it to um, a different kind of homeostasis that would let them survive for months without eating a thing. Uh, and and yet, you know, in the summer, um, you know, these bats they 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 rouse out of their hibernation. They they fly around, and um, and they still keep their uh, inner environment stable. Um, their their temperature is much warmer, but uh, but it's stable at that new set point. Um, you can even think about the way they fly. Um, like in order to fly, you have to stay stable, even if you're being buffeted by, by winds and such. And bats are amazing at doing that. You, you blast a gust of air at them. They might tip one way, but then they very quickly right themselves. Um, and that is actually, I think, one of these universal um, principles of life. Um, how does life keep homeostasis? Um, it uses things like negative feedback. Um, so it's in the same, same kind of system that your thermostat uses to keep your house at a certain temperature or your car uses uh, with cruise control. So if you're going up hills and downhills, it senses that you're, you're moving away from the set point and it has these negative feedbacks built in to bring you back. Um, and uh, so, so the, so again, you know, the, these, we need these stable inner environments to sustain life, um, but we also need to sustain the inner environments with negative feedback. So what about evolution? Is Darwinian evolution perhaps another one of these hallmarks of life? I know that at least at one point, NASA more or less defined life as any self-replicating self entity capable of undergoing Darwinian evolution. And, you know, defining life actually is really important if you think about the, uh, the search for life elsewhere. We need a good definition of what it is before we can find it, at least if it looks, you know, very, very alien um, compared to life on Earth. So do you think that Darwinian evolution is another one of these hallmarks of life? Well, uh, I have a chapter in the book about evolution um, because certainly, you know, everything that we call alive uh, is the product of evolution. And um, evolution is not something that uh, just happened a long time ago and then stopped. Um, evolution is, is built into um, the process of life. Um, uh, living things uh, can reproduce um, and in the process of reproduction, they pass down the genetic information that allows their own cells to function, their bodies to function. And when you copy uh, genetic information, um, it's, it's just a series of chemical reactions and there, are, there can be um, what we would call mistakes. In other words, um, the, the new copy of, the, of some DNA won't be totally identical to the original one. Um, and so these are mutations. And so this is the raw material for, for, uh, for a genetic variation. And when you have this kind of variation that can be passed down to, for, to future generations, you have the opportunity for natural selection. Um, so 
you know, if there's any mutation that is really harmful uh, or is really beneficial, evolution just takes over. It, it will make it, those mutations either less common or more common. So, so evolution is sort of built in to, uh, to, to life um, as we know it. So NASA um, in the early 1990s, you know, they, they brought some scientists together to talk about looking for life on other planets. And these scientists after a while realized, you know, we really need to agree on what we're talking about before we start looking for it. And so they had a very long conversation. You know, they wanted, they wanted a, a they, they weren't philosophers, you know, they, they just, they said they just wanted a working definition, something they could use for research. Uh, so something short, sweet, practical, and really focused on what NASA wants to do. Um, and so they came up with this definition of life being a self-sustaining chemical system that's capable of Darwinian evolution. Um, so the self-sustaining part is, is um, you know, takes into account the homeostasis we've talked about, metabolism, um, and then, you know, being capable of Darwinian evolution, there's, you've got the reproduction there, you've got the genetics built in, you know, you're not saying that it has to be made of DNA, but, um, but we're going to, you know, they were just saying like, we're going to call life this um it's you know it, it, but it's it's tricky i mean obviously um it's really important to understand evolution to understand life but um if you go to another planet do you have and see something and you're like hmm, i think that might be alive I, I don't think that's a rock i think that's a living thing um well do you have to prove that uh it is capable of evolution before you will uh really demonstrated that it's alive. I mean, I can't prove to you that I can evolve. Like I can't evolve. I'm just a, I'm just a guy. I have, I'm, I've got, I'm a father of two kids. I don't know what they, their descendants will look like. Who knows? Um, here I am. So how, so, so in a way it's a, even though it was supposed to be a working definition in a way it's kind of impractical because it doesn't really tell you what you're supposed to do with this concept of evolution you know, when you, when you're on another planet and trying to figure out what you're looking at. So is there anything special about the type of chemistry that we find in life? So, you know, you mentioned DNA and the ability to replicate imperfectly, which gives rise to the evolutionary process, but is the type of organic chemistry that we see in life somehow different from the type of chemistry we see in the non-living world? Well, um, certainly, um, you know, when you look at some of the, uh, you know, molecules that make us up or that make up, um, you know, a tulip, um, they are different than the kind of molecules that you will find floating around in a, in a, in interstellar gas or, or deep inside the earth, um, you know, uh, living things can build stuff. Um, they, they are sort of these, these you, know, um, you know, blind uh, Lego builders, you know, like um, they, can, they can assemble very complicated proteins and, uh, and other structures. Um, and so some scientists have argued that, uh, have, have put forward something, uh, this is a, a Lee Cronin, University of Glasgow, Sarah Walker, Arizona State University, and Kate Adamala um, at uh, University of Minnesota. They've been exploring something called assembly theory. 
which is basically a theory that uh, posits that um, maybe we can distinguish life from non-life by trying to determine how many steps it takes to build stuff. Now, these can be steps that just happen without the presence of life. Just, you know, if you go to some hydrothermal vent, for example, where lots of minerals are surging around at the bottom of the ocean, there's a lot of weird chemistry there and chemical reactions can build on chemical reactions and end up building something really weird, you know? So these giant chimneys, you know, they're not, they were not built by living things. It's just geology, geochemistry. Um, but, you know, um, a big DNA molecule or, or even a, a, a hemoglobin molecule, a protein, like these things that it takes many steps to, to build them um, and they're built in a very specified way. So, um, yeah, so that, that's, that is, um, that is one way that, uh, you know, maybe not only can we start to think about life theoretically, but also it could be a very practical way uh, of looking for life on other planets. You might actually just not even have to visit a planet. Maybe you just look with your telescopes at the atmosphere of a planet, maybe in another solar system. And then if you can figure out the composition of some of the molecules in the atmosphere, well, maybe those are the kinds of things that have to be assembled. They don't just sort of form through atmospheric chemistry. Hmm. So the idea is that life assembles things the assembly of those things, proteins or whatever, takes many, many steps. And it just, it sounds like it's just sort of a fact insofar as we understand that, you know, there's certain things, certain forms of chemistry that can't happen in just one step. It takes many, many steps. And that seems to somehow be tied to life. Yeah. I mean, in one uh, sort of uh, preliminary uh, study, um, Lee Cronin and other scientists said, like, let's just let's just take a look at a huge number of compounds, just a vast, vast number of compounds. Some of them will be things we get from living things. Some of them will be stuff we get pull out of meteorites. Some of them will just pull out of a rock or out of the air or whatever. Um, and um, and they had a sort of a procedure for basically, you know, determining uh, the number of steps through chemistry that uh, could produce them. And, um, and basically like um, anything that wasn't alive, they couldn't find anything that required uh, more than 15 steps. Um, only, you know, if you go above 15, only living things uh, are there. Um, so there are some, there, there are some components, uh, some organic molecules that you don't need 15 steps. There's some, they're on the simpler end of things, but, but life is capable of this incredible elaboration because once you got the system set up, essentially of just, I mean, you know, I mean, the, our, the chemistry that we use and that life as we know it uses is just basically, I'm going to take an amino acid and I'm gonna stick it on another amino acid. And then I'm gonna go look for another amino acid. I've got, you know, 20 or so to choose from and I'm gonna different kinds, stick that one on the, uh, on the end uh, and just keep sticking them <laughs> until I got a chain and then I let it go. And then it spontaneously folds into some very cool shape. Um, and then, you know, other proteins might sort of fine tune it. And there you go. Um, so, um, <clears throat> 
So, so that, uh, so it's an open-ended process. I mean, you can keep just sticking on more and more amino acids onto a protein, and then you can then cut that protein into two different pieces if you want, or, or combine two proteins together. Um, it's an open-ended creative process. That's one of the things that makes life so wonderful. And, and you can encode those proteins with, with genes where you've got these <coughs> genes have these four different um, sort of genetic letters as it were. And you just have this uh, amazing um, open-ended capacity to rewrite genes to, to, make new, to make new proteins or new RNA molecules. Uh, and um, so, so life has this capacity for, for assembly far beyond anything else that we know of in the universe. So is anyone using this notion, this idea of assembly theory to actively look for potential signs of life in planets outside of Earth right now? Uh, they are, uh, they're, they're trying to develop some uh, strategies for, for that search for extraterrestrial life. Um, a lot of this is really going to scale up in an exciting way as uh, astronomers put um, new generations of telescopes into space. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is something that a lot of people have been thinking about for the past year, which is viruses. So we talked about homeostasis. We talked about Darwinian evolution. With those things in mind, are viruses alive or not? Well, it, it does come down to what we think of as being alive. Um, and so we just talked about the NASA definition of life. Um, so there, according to NASA, and their working definition, um, in order to be alive, you have to be a chemical, uh, a chemical self-sustaining system capable of um, Darwinian evolution. So if we look at viruses, well, um, Darwinian evolution, they've got that covered um, because viruses mutate very quickly and they, uh, you know, every time that they infect a cell and produce new viruses, uh, those viruses uh, often have a lot of new mutations. Most of those mutations are harmful. A few may be beneficial. And so uh, those beneficial mutations can help the virus adapt. It can adapt within our own bodies. Um, and it can also adapt over longer timescales going from person to person. Um, and so, you know, it's, it is this evolution that gave us uh, our, our COVID-19 pandemic um, by uh, a a coronavirus that um, adapted to humans uh, having been in bats originally. Uh, and the coronavirus is continuing to evolve um, and it's branching into new lineages. Uh, the, the, some of those lineages have mutations that are increasing their transmission and those are becoming dominant. Um, so we can see uh, that viruses are capable of Darwinian evolution right in front of us. Um, they're not self-sustaining in the sense that maybe NASA meant. <clears throat> NASA was thinking, you know, these scientists, if you ask them, they were thinking about homeostasis and metabolism and 
So that's taking place inside of cells with all sorts of complex chemistry, you know, proteins that are, are regulating each other, feedback loops built in, um, genes making new proteins when they're needed, uh, proteins being destroyed when they have to be gotten rid of. It's incredible choreography that goes on inside of all of our cells. Um, viruses, you look inside a virus, there's none of that. There are some genes. Usually those genes are held in place uh, by a protein and that's it. Um, so the way that viruses are able to replicate and to evolve is that they just go into a, a host cell, they infect a cell and their genes are used by the cell um, to basically um, rejigger the cell itself so that it is now all about making new viruses. One of the scientists involved in the NASA working uh, definition of life is named Gerald Joyce. Um, and he was once asked, well, what about viruses? And he was, he was very clear about it. He said, well, according to this working definition, viruses don't make the cut. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of scientists will tell you categorically that viruses are not alive. However, there are viruses, there are However, there are scientists who will tell you that viruses are definitely alive because they can evolve, because they're so important in ecology, because uh, they are so important to the, to the web of life. Um, you know, we have viruses, viruses have contributed to our own genome, for example. We have hundreds of thousands of pieces of our DNA that came from viruses. Uh, and so, um, so you've got those people arguing that viruses are alive. Um, and then you have people who are kind of in between. Um, so there's one French scientist named Patrick Fortaire who argues that, well, when a virus is just floating along on its own, it's, it's not alive. However, when it goes into a cell and infects its cell, that combination of the virus and the cell is now a new distinct living entity. So the virus gains this this life every time it infects a cell. Um, that in a, in a sense, that cell is the virus because the purpose of that cell is now to make new viruses. Um, and and it is remarkable when you look at what happens to a cell when it gets infected by, say, the new coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2. Um, you can see it just it looks different. It, 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 the, the cell builds little uh, incubation chambers for, for creating and, and fine-tuning new viral genes. Um, it doesn't do any of the, of, of the stuff it needs to do for itself to grow and to divide. That all stops because it's now it, all of its chemistry is in the service of making new viruses. Um, so this question, is, vir is a virus alive, is not settled, but it's unsettled in, in the most interesting way possible. Um, one anecdote that I did want to ask you about that came up in the book, it was from an episode in uh, the early 20th century. So there was this guy named Henri Bergson. And he wrote a book. This was a philosopher, I think. He wrote a book called Creative Evolution. And apparently it was a bestseller at the time. It was like a popular science book. 
And, and you even write that when he traveled to New York to deliver a series of lectures, he reportedly caused one of the city's first big traffic jams. So what was, who, who was this guy? What was this book about? And why was there so much discussion and debate around it? Uh, so Henri Bergson was a French philosopher who was, um, he wrote a number of books. Well, the, perhaps the most famous one is the English translation is Creative Evolution. And um, in, in a way, uh, Bergson was, was reacting against um, the, the modern science of biology that was emerging at the time. There, there had been a tension ever since uh, the scientific revolution in the 1600s uh, about the nature of life. Because in the 1600s, you know, physicists were starting to think about uh, the, the world as matter in motion. So you have matter <clears throat> that is passively uh, being moved around by mechanical forces. And you can explain all sorts of things this way. You can, you can explain how planets go around the sun. You can explain why it is that a cannonball fired at a certain angle will land in a certain place very far away. It's predictive, it's powerful, and uh, it leads uh, some natural philosophers, uh, these are sort of the predecessors of scientists, to argue that, well, uh, living things are also explained through uh, these mechanical forces. Um, these would sometimes be called mechanists. Um, and uh, you know, did Rene Descartes uh, was perhaps the most famous of, of uh, the people who saw nature this way and, and really saw animals and, and other living things as essentially machines, merely in the sense that, that you could explain them as, as parts that were uh, moving to carry out certain functions in response to just, just understandable forces mechanical forces. Um, and there was an opposition to him um, from uh, other thinkers who argued, no, well, there's got to be, it, it, that's, you can't just reduce life to mechanical forces. It's not just matter in motion. Uh, and, uh, and, and these people would sometimes uh, speak of a, a vital force so there, there was some sort of vital force that uh, that organized living matter, um, that uh, gave living things their the goals that they they sought. You know, they they're they're eating to survive to reproduce. It's not just a random movement of particles. Uh, eventually, these people became to be known as vitalists, um, often in a derogatory sense, and this tension between. Um, sort of mechanism and vitalism, it really, uh, 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 it's fascinating how that, that that's the debate over what is life for four centuries. Um, so getting back to Henry Bergson, um, you know, Bergson is, is writing at a time when, um, you know, the mechanists have be turned into biochemists. In other words, um, they have been able to um, understand living things in terms of enzymes. Um, they're, they're starting to, to see some of the reactions that uh, carry out these, these vital essential processes in life. Um, 
And so on the one hand, this is very exciting. I mean, we're, you, the, the biochemists are saying, look, we are unpacking the secret of life. But for a lot of people, this was very unappealing. It would really felt like you're just, again, reducing nature to just these molecules that are passively uh, responding to uh, these forces. Um, and, and so that, you know, we're quote unquote, just chemistry. So Henry Bergson, he was not a scientist, but a philosopher, but he built into his philosophy, um, which you might call neo-vitalism in the sense that he still believed that there was, um, there was something, um, something beyond uh, this kind of physics and chemistry that defined life. And in fact, that there was something that propelled life forward that that evolution in in a way like had there was some sort of um almost mystical force that was propelling evolution to more and more higher and higher levels of complexity um and maybe that you know the universe was was uh, you know carried along in some some direction um now his 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 arguments i'm not doing justice to his arguments because they're a lot more complex than that but um but i will say that you know he 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 was incredibly uh, popular. I mean, Creative Evolution was a huge bestseller. And as you mentioned, he may have created the first traffic jam in New York when he showed up to talk about it. So people were hungry for this kind of uh, view that sort of elevated their lives above biochemistry. Um, but the biochemists themselves, you know, I mean, I think they found that <clears throat> talking about vital forces and vitalism just wasn't helpful. Um, because all that these people were doing is just pointing to things that we do not yet understand. And that's not, that's not really evidence of every, anything. It's sort of like saying like, well, we don't know how whales evolved because um, whales couldn't have evolved because we don't have any fossils of whales with legs. That's true until you find a whale with legs, which scientists did in the 1990s. So that's, that's no longer a thing. Um, so, um, but at the same time, you know, the spirit of vitalism, I would argue, and I talk about in Life's Edge, it, it endures because, um, you know, you do need to talk about life beyond um, just uh, Newton's laws of motion or, or, or the rules about, you know, uh, the bonds between atoms. Um, there, are there are higher levels of organization in life um, that uh, you have to recognize in order to make sense of life. You don't have to be a vitalist to recognize that, but um, but you know, in a way, uh, you know, uh, you know, some of the questions that vitalists had, even you know, hundred years ago, ha have yet to be answered. Do you think that perhaps a modern a modern answer to the vitalists comes from things like assembly theory, where it's not it's not merely mechanistic and just pointing to the biochemistry, but a key aspect of that theory is that there is something uh, special about the way that information flows through things that we call living systems, that the information is in a sense controlling the way that the matter organizes itself. Is that Does that seem right to you? And, and can you just unpack what that thinking is around assembly theory? Well, assembly theory um, in a way uh, kind of sort of takes it as a given that um, that life is capable of, of the sort of open-ended uh, creativity that I was just talking about. <clears throat> uh, 
um, how how that uh, how life was able to start assembling in the first place actually is a very hard question. Um, but um, but certainly, you know, you mentioned information, and and information probably is you know part of uh, the answer to these big to these big questions. Um, People think of information um, as, uh, you know, in terms of like, you know, computer files. And so they might think of information strictly in terms of, well, what's the information encoded in, in genes? Um, the, it's a legitimate thing to think about information that way. But, um, but physicists will also talk about information in lots of, uh, lots of other contexts. Um, they will often talk about, well, if you know about something, how much uncertainty does that reduce about what you know about something else? Um, and you can actually sort of trace that reduction of uncertainty through a system. Um, and uh, physicists will call that a, a, a flow of information. And cells have very interesting flows of information, um, the ways that proteins interact with each other and interact with genes proteins switch some genes on and turn them off in response to things that are happening on the outside. The flow of information is very peculiar. It's, uh, and, and that might be uh, a clue about, uh, you know, a theory of life that is, that is based on, on information. Um, that full theory does not yet exist. Um, you know, there are other theories that involve um, the dissipation of energy for example, so you know, um, a you know, you, if you've got a tree growing in your yard, um, energy is coming into the tree. The tree is absorbing energy through photosynthesis, um, and then is eventually releasing that as heat. Um, but um, it, it's really good at that that dissipation um, uh, of energy, uh, and in the process, it is. Uh, it is building its wood, its bark, its leaves and, and flowers and making new trees as well. So there may be something about um, how it is that um, matter dissipates, dissipates energy that under certain conditions, you get this sort of self-organization that is so distinctive of life. Um, and so it just it may just happen spontaneously when you get the parameters just right. Um, a scientist named Jeremy England has done a whole lot of work uh, on this particular view of, of, of life and it might help to um, sort of, in a sense, show how life is uh, an, inevitable, an, an inevitability. Um, you know, you set up a universe like ours, sooner or later, somewhere you're gonna get life. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your writing process. So you've written uh, a large number of books at this point. Would you say that you have a writing process for your books? Like, do you, do you decide that you're going to write a book about a topic, you start writing, and then you finish writing, and you're, you're really focused on that book? Or is it more of an organic thing where you're sort of writing articles and taking down notes over time, and, and eventually you have an assemblage that you then recognize is potentially book-worthy? Sometimes I just decide I want to write a book on 
X and I, I just go out and I do some research on X <laughs> and um, just outline the structure of a book and then write it. Um, so for example, some years ago, I got interested thinking about the brain and how was it that we came to see ourselves um, in a sense as our brains or that you know our brains were where uh, things like emotion took place, uh, reasoning and so on. Like when did the brain become the center of our existence? Um, and um, I thought, well, that would be, I'd be curious to know what the answer is. And I started looking around doing, you know, starting to go beyond um, the history of neuroscience as I, under, as I knew it then and just started digging deeper and just was fascinated to discover uh, how neurology um, was uh, invented very quickly in the, in the mid 1600s by um, just a few people. Uh, most interestingly, uh, an English physician named Thomas Willis. He actually coined the word neurology and published the first uh, book just about the brain. It included the first really accurate pictures of the brain uh, made by Christopher Wren. Uh, and, uh, and I was just like, wow, I, I want to write about this. And there was no book about this before. So I wrote a book called Soul Made Flesh. Um, so there was a case where, you know, I just said, okay, I'm interested in this subject. I'm going to do a book on it. Um, there are other cases that are more like what you just described where um, I will just be going about my business as a journalist, writing um, newspaper articles, articles for magazines like the Atlantic or National Geographic. And then after a while, I might kind of look back at, you know, at a few years of, of material and think, hmm, I seem to be continually gravitating back to a certain question. Um, maybe, I, maybe it would be good to just stop and, and take all that material as the starting point and dive deep and really, really try to bring it together into some kind of unified story. So I would say Life's Edge is one example of that. Also, my uh, the book I wrote in 2018, my previous book, uh, She Has Her Mother's Laugh. And there, you know, I, I was writing about heredity, which was something that um, I had been writing a lot about in various forms. You know, um, you know what as as scientists were able to analyze you know, DNA from millions of people um, and start to, to reconstruct our genealogy and look at how we're related to each other. What was that telling us um, both about heredity and about maybe our, the, the ideas about heredity that we share that we're wrong about? Um, things like epigenetics, uh, which were uh, really coming to the fore and I'd been writing about. And CRISPR in a sense is the manipulation of the future of heredity. And I was writing a lot about CRISPR as well. So at one point I just said like, wait a minute, like, you know, these 20 or 30 articles, it's all about the same thing. So maybe I need to, to create one thing where I, I really explore this in a unified way and dive into the history as well. So when you're actually in the midst of writing a book, say, so you've, you've decided that you're writing the book, you know, you're writing it. Maybe you even have a, you know, a deadline you have to hit. Um, it's no longer just an idea. How regimented is your writing process? Are you, you know, some writers describe a very regimented process where every morning for four hours, 
sit down and write no matter what. And others have a very different style. How would you describe your approach to actually doing the writing and sitting down to get it done once the project is underway? Well, you know, certainly once you sign a contract, um, uh, that that does clarify the mind. <laughs> and, um, you know, you're not going to just sit around at that point and just wait for inspiration to strike or, or you know, you're not going to only write when you when you only feel at your very best. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you need to you need to be writing or researching every day, whether the muses are looking kindly at on you on that day or not. Um, even, a, even a lousy day of writing is better than not writing at all. And, and you know, you, at least you have raw material that you can go back to and look at and say like, oh, wait a minute, I can see why this is so terrible <laughs> because there's something else I need to be talking about. Or if I flip this chapter upside down, it's great. Um, so uh, yeah, so I, 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 I don't think I'm, I, I, I do hear sometimes stories of writers who say like, you know, I get up at five in the morning and, you know, have, have a bowl of muesli. And then from 6am to 10am, I do nothing but write. Um, that's not me. Um, you know, I might some, some days I'm writing very late at night. Um, other days it's the morning when I'm writing. Um, some days, uh, it's, you know, it's kind of a slow, creeping, crawling process. Maybe I'm, I'm just realizing I have to stop writing and do a lot of reading or call someone because I don't really understand what I'm writing about. And then other days I'm just on a, just on a tear and I really, you know, I'll tell my wife, like, I'm coming out for dinner, but then I'm going back in because like, I, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to waste this, this, this role that I'm on. Interesting. And how, is there anything else actually that you want people to know about Life's Edge that maybe we didn't cover? Well, one thing that, um, that I find interesting is that, you know, I, I went and spent time with a lot of scientists who are, um, who are really thinking about life um, at its, at its extremes. Uh, so, for example, one person I went to talk to with was uh, Lori Barge. She's an astrobiologist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. And um, what she's been doing a lot of work on recently is thinking about these icy moons, uh, such as Enceladus around Saturn, uh, as possibly being where you can find life. Um, so Enceladus is covered in ice, but there's a liquid water ocean under there. And as the moon goes around Saturn, th there are these tremendous tidal forces that kind of stretch out the core of the moon in different directions, and that generates heat. So you have this energy source and a liquid ocean um, and um, lots of interesting chemistry happening. So what's going on under the ice? She would like to know. Um, and so, you know, NASA is, is thinking about maybe sending some probes back out to places like Enceladus to, to really figure that out. Um, and what's fascinating to me is like, I will talk to someone like her and, and uh, say like, well, <clears throat> do, you, do you use this NASA definition of, of life? Is that, you know, what, what do you, what, what, what would something have to be for you to decide that it's life? 
And, you know, she says, actually, she tries to avoid definitions of life because they get in the way. Um, she wants to just learn as much as she can about what's going on on Enceladus. What is the chemistry there? Um, you know, it could be very interesting chemistry that's just the result of these hydrothermal vents at the bottom of its ocean. Could get some very weird structures, some very weird molecules, um, and that'll be cool. And maybe some of them will be starting to um, replicate in some peculiar way. Um, but she's not about to sort of say like, well, if it's not life, I don't care. Um, she wants to go there and to get some ideas about life that maybe she didn't already know. And <clears throat> when you talk to philosophers, they will actually say that, well, we, we should have this more sort of open-ended uh, exploration of life rather than arguing about what is the definition of life. Um, one philosopher I spoke to named Carol Cleland uh, put it this way. She's like, essentially, it's like you're in 1500 and you go to an alchemist and say, well, what's your definition of water? And you actually, you can look at books of alchemy and see what they said. Um, they would say things like, well, water is something that's transparent and is liquid. You know, water is wet. It can dissolve certain things. That's just a list, like saying like life is something with homeostasis and metabolism and evolution. And the problem with lists is that, well, you, you have this situation like, okay, the water gets cold and now you have ice. Is that water? The alchemist has to look at his list and say, no, I guess not, because it's not liquid, so it's not water. Um, and also you have different uh, kinds of water. Uh, you, you have things that are transparent and liquid uh, and can dissolve metal. Um, so you need to give them, so they must be a certain kind of water, a, a royal water, it might be called. Um, now, if you went for 300 years, um, you know, you, you could talk to a chemist and a chemist has a theory of matter now, a theory of atoms and molecules, um, elements, uh, you know, atomic, starting to get ideas of how atoms form molecules. And now you can start think, talking about water in terms of a molecule of hydrogen uh, and oxygen, two hydrogens to an oxygen. And, you know, eventually through experiments and, and uh, modeling and so on, you can understand how it is that what we call liquid water becomes ice through the change in the arrangement of those molecules. Um, so, you know, we're kind of at the point now where we're, bef we're in the before times. We're before that theory that could account for life. Um, and there are people working on that theory right now. It's very exciting, but we're not there yet. Um, and, you know, maybe we will live long enough to see it. You know, there were people who, you know, for whom superconductivity was a, was a mystery. And then Einstein tried to explain it and he couldn't, and, and others tried to explain it and they couldn't, and then someone did. And then we had a theory of superconductivity, which was a really important thing for physicists. So maybe one day we'll have a theory of life um, and that will be better than a definition of life. Well, Carl Zimmer, uh, thanks for your time. The book is Life's Edge, The Search for What It Means to Be Alive. It's a great read and it's out now. So thanks for writing the book, Carl, and thanks for talking to me today. Well, thanks a lot. It's been a real pleasure.